Section two of the last of the Valeri. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The last of the Valeri by Henry James. Section two. He left me musing uncomfortably and wondering what the deuce he meant. The Count certainly chose to make a mystery of the Juno, but this seemed a natural incident of the first rapture of possession. I was willing to wait for permission to approach her, and in the meantime I was glad to find that there was a limit to his constitutional apathy. But as the days elapsed I began to be conscious that his enjoyment was not communicative, but strangely cold and shy and sombre. That he should admire a marble goddess was no reason for his despising mankind, yet he really seemed to be making invidious comparisons between us. From this ridiculous prescription his charming wife was not accepted. At moments when I tried to persuade myself that he was neither worse nor better company than usual, the expression of her face contradicted this superficial view. She said nothing, but she wore a look of really touching perplexity. She sat at times with her eyes fixed on him with a kind of imploring curiosity, as if for the present she were too much surprised to be angry. What passed between them in private? I had, of course, no warrant to inquire. Nothing, I suspected, and that was the misery. It was part of the misery, too, that he was impenetrable to these mute glances, and looked over her head with an air of superb abstraction. Occasionally he seemed to notice that I, too, didn't know what to make of his condition, and then for a moment his dull eye would sparkle, half as it appeared, with a kind of sinister irony, and half with an impulse strangely stifled, as soon as he felt it, to justify himself. But from his wife he kept his face inexorably averted, and when she approached him with some melancholy attempt at fondness, he received it with an ill-concealed shudder. The situation struck me as tremendously queer, and I grew to hate the Count and everything that belonged to him. I was a thousand times right, I cried. An Italian Count may be mighty fine, but he won't wear. Give us some wholesome young fellow of our own blood, who will play us none of these dusky old-world tricks. Artist, as I have aspired to be, I will never again recommend a husband with traditions. I lost my pleasure in the villa, in the violet shadows and amber lights, the mossy marbles and the long trailing profile of the Alban hills. My painting stood still, everything looked ugly. I sat and fumbled with my palette, and seemed to be mixing mud with my colours. My head was stuffed with dismal thoughts, an intolerable weight settled itself on my heart. The poor Count became, to my imagination, a dark efflorescence of the evil germs which history had implanted in his line. No wonder he was foredoomed to be cruel. Was not cruelty a tradition in his race, and crime an example? The unholy passions of his forefathers revived, incurably, in his untaught nature, and clamoured dumbly for an issue. What a heavy heritage, it seemed to me, as I reckoned it up in my melancholy musings, the Count's interminable ancestry! Back to the profligate revival of arts and vices, back to the bloody medley of medieval wars, back through the long, fitfully glaring dusk of the early ages, to its ponderous origin of the solid Roman state, back through all the darkness of history it stretched itself, losing every claim on my sympathies as it went. Such a record was in itself a curse, 
and my dear girl had expected it to sit as lightly and gratefully on her consciousness as her feathers on her hat. I have little idea how long this painful situation lasted. It seemed the longer from my goddaughter's persistent reticence and my inability to offer her a word of consolation. A sensitive woman, disappointed in marriage, exhausts her own ingenuity before she takes counsel of others. The Count's preoccupations, whatever they were, made him increasingly restless. He came and went at random with nervous abruptness. He took long rides alone, and, as I inferred, rarely went through the form of excusing himself to his wife. And still, as time went on, he came no nearer explaining his mystery. With the lapse of the months, however, I confess that my anxiety began to be tempered with compassion. If I had expected to see him propitiate his inexorable ancestry by the commission of a misdeed, now that his honest nature appeared to have refused them this satisfaction, I felt a sort of grudging gratitude. A man couldn't be so infernally blue without being, however little he might confess it, in want of sympathy. He had always treated me with that antique deference to a grizzled beard for which elderly men reserve the cream of their general tenderness for waning fashions, and I thought it possible he would suffer me at last to lay a healing hand upon his trouble. One evening, when I had taken leave of my goddaughter, and given her, in a silent kiss, my rather ineffectual blessing, I came out and found the Count sitting in the garden, in the mild starlight, and staring at a mouldy Hermes planted in a clump of oleander. I sat down by him, and informed him in definite terms that his conduct required an explanation. He half turned his head, and his dark pupil gleamed an instant. "'I understand,' he said. "'You think me crazy.' And he tapped his forehead. "'No, not crazy, but unhappy. And if unhappiness runs its course too freely, of course it's a great strain on the mind.' He was silent a while, and then— "'I am not unhappy,' he cried abruptly. "'I am tremendously happy. You wouldn't believe the satisfaction I take in sitting here and staring at that old weather-worn Hermes. Formerly I used to be afraid of him. His frown used to remind me of a bushy-browed old priest who taught me Latin and looked at me terribly over the book when I stumbled in my Virgil. But now it seems to me the friendliest, jolliest thing in the world, and suggests the most delightful images. He stood pouting his great lips in some old Roman's garden two thousand years ago. He saw the sandaled feet treading the alleys, and the rose-crowned heads bending over the wine. He knew the old feasts and the old worship, the old believers and the old gods. As I sit here, he speaks to me in his own dumb way and describes it all. No, no, my friend, I am the happiest of men. I had denied that I thought he was crazy, but I suddenly began to suspect it, for I found nothing reassuring in this singular rhapsody. The Hermes, for a wonder, had kept his nose and when I reflected that my dear Countess was being neglected for this senseless pagan block, I secretly promised myself to come the next day with a hammer, and deal him such a lusty blow as would make him too ridiculous for a sentimental tete-a-tete. Meanwhile, however, the Count's infatuation was no laughing matter, and I expressed my sincerest conviction when I said, after a pause, that I should recommend him to see either a priest or a physician. He burst into uproarious laughter. A priest! What should I do with a priest, or he with me? I never loved them, and I feel less like beginning than ever. 
A priest, my dear friend, he repeated, laying his hand on my arm. Don't set a priest at me if you value his sanity. My confession would frighten the poor man out of his wits. As for a doctor, I never was better in my life. And unless, he added abruptly, rising and eyeing me askance, you want to poison me in Christian charity, I advise you to leave me alone. Decidedly, the Count was unsound, and I had no heart for some days to go back to the villa. How should I treat him? What stand should I take? What course did Martha's happiness and dignity demand? I wandered about Rome, turning over these questions, and one afternoon found myself in the Pantheon. A light spring shower had begun to fall, and I hurried for refuge into the big rotunda which its Christian altars have but half converted into a church. No Roman monument retains a deeper impress of ancient life, or has more of the form of the antique faiths whose temples were nobler than their gods. The huge dusky dome seems to the spiritual ear to hold a vague reverberation of pagan worship, as a shell picked up on the beach holds the rumour of the sea. Three or four persons were scattered before the various altars. Another stood near the centre, beneath the aperture in the dome. As I drew near, I perceived this was the Count. He was planted with his hands behind him, looking up first at the heavy rain-clouds as they crossed the great bull's-eye, and then down at the besprinkled circle on the pavement. In those days the pavement was rugged and cracked, and magnificently old, and this ample space in a free communion with the weather had become as mouldy and mossy and verdant as a strip of garden-soil. A tender herbage had sprung up in the crevices of the slabs, and the little microscopic shoots were twinkling in the rain. This great weather-current through the uncapped vault deadens effectively the customary odours of incense and tallow, and transports one to a faith that was on terms of reciprocity with nature. It seemed to have performed this office for the Count. His face wore an indefinable expression of ecstasy, and he was so rapt in contemplation that it was some time before he noticed me. The sun was struggling through the clouds without, and yet a thin rain continued to fall, and came drifting down into our gloomy enclosure in a sort of illuminated drizzle. The Count watched it with the fascinated stare of a child watching a fountain and then turned away, pressing his hand to his brow, and walked over to one of the rather perfunctory altars. Here he again stood staring, but in a moment wheeled about and returned to his former place. Just then he recognized me, and perceived, I suppose, the curious gaze I must have fixed on him. He waved me a greeting with his hand, and at last came towards me. He was in a state of nervous exaltation, doing his best to appear natural. This is the best place in Rome, he murmured. It's worth fifty St. Peter's. But you know I never came here till the other day. I left it to the Forestieri. They go about with their red books and their opera-glasses, and read about this and that, and think they know it. Ah, you must feel it, feel the beauty and fitness of that great open skylight. Now only the wind and the rain, the sun and the cold, come down. But of old, of old and he touched my arm and gave me a strange smile. The pagan gods and goddesses used to descend through it and take their places at their altars. What a procession when the eyes of faith could see it! Those are the things they have given us instead. And he gave a pitiful shrug. I should like to pull down their pictures, overturn their candlesticks, and poison their holy water. My dear Count, I said gently, 
you should tolerate people's honest beliefs would you renew the inquisition and in the interests of jupiter and mercury people wouldn't tolerate my belief if they guessed it he cried there's been a great deal of talk about the pagan persecutions but the christians persecuted as well and the old gods were worshipped in caves and woods as well as the new and none the worse for that it was in caves and woods and streams in earth and air and water they dwelt and there and here too in spite of all your christian lustrations a son of old italy may find them still he had said more than he meant and his mask had fallen i looked at him hard and felt a sudden outgush of the compassion we always feel for a creature irresponsibly excited i seemed to touch the source of his trouble and my relief was great for my discovery made me feel like bursting into laughter but i contented myself with smiling benignantly he looked back at me suspiciously as if to judge how far he had betrayed himself and in his glance i read somehow that he had a conscience we could take hold of in my gratitude i was ready to thank any gods he pleased take care take care i said you were saying things which if the sacristan there were to hear and report and I passed my hand through his arm, and led him away. I was startled and shocked, but I was also amused and comforted. The Count had suddenly become for me a delightfully curious phenomenon, and I passed the rest of the day in meditating on the strange ineffaceability of race characteristics. A sturdy young Latin I had called poor Marco, and he was sturdier indeed than I had dreamed him. Discretion was now out of place, and on the morrow I spoke to my goddaughter. She had lately been hoping, I think, that I would help her to unburden her heart, for she immediately gave way to tears, and confessed that she was miserable. I have racked my brain to discover what I had said, or done, or thought to displease him. And yet he goes about like a man too deeply injured to complain. He has never uttered a harsh word, or given me a reproachful look. He has simply renounced me. I have dropped out of his life." She spoke with such a pathetic little quiver in her voice, that I was on the point of telling her that I had guessed the riddle, and that was half the battle. But I was afraid of her incredulity. My solution was so fantastic, so apparently far-fetched, so absurd, that I resolved to wait for convincing evidence. To obtain it, I continued to watch the Count, covertly and cautiously but with a vigilance which disinterested curiosity now made intensely keen. I returned to my painting, and neglected no pretext for hovering about the gardens and the neighbourhood of the casino. The Count, I think, suspected my designs, or at least my suspicions, and would have been glad to remember just what he had suffered himself to say to me in the Pantheon. But it deepened my interest in his extraordinary situation, that in so far as I could read his deeply brooding face, he seemed, half contemptuously, to have forgiven me. He gave me a glance occasionally as he passed me, in which a kind of dumb desire for help appeared to struggle, with a conviction that such a one as I would never understand him. I was willing enough to help him, but the case was exceedingly delicate, and I wished to master the symptoms. Meanwhile I worked and waited and wondered. Ah, I wondered, you may be sure, with an interminable wonder and turn it over as I would, I couldn't get used to my idea. Sometimes it offered itself to me with a perverse fascination which deprived me of all wish to interfere. 
The Count took the form of a precious psychological study, and refined feelings seemed to dictate a tender respect for his delusion. I envied him the force of his imagination, and I used sometimes to close my eyes with a vague desire that when I opened them I might find Apollo under the opposite tree, lazily kissing his flute, or see Diana hurrying with long steps down the ilex walk. But for the most part my host seemed to me simply an unhappy young man with a morbid mental twist which ought to be smoothed away as speedily as possible. If the remedy was to match the disease, however, it would have to be an extraordinary dose. One evening, having bidden my goddaughter a good night, I started on my usual walk to my lodgings in the Corso. Five minutes after leaving the villa gate, I discovered that I had left my eyeglass, an object in constant use, behind me. I immediately remembered that while painting I had broken the string which fastened it round my neck and had hooked it provisionally upon the twig of a flowering almond which happened to be near me. Shortly afterwards I had gathered up my things and retired, unmindful of the glass, and now, as I needed it to read the evening paper at the Café Greco, there was no alternative but to retrace my steps and detach it from its twig. I easily found it, and lingered a while to note the curious night aspect of the spot I had been studying by daylight. The night was magnificent, and full-charged with the breath of the early Roman spring. The moon was rising fast, and flinging her silver checkers into the heavy masses of shadow. Watching her at work, I strolled farther, and suddenly came in sight of the casino. Just then the moon, which for a moment had been concealed, touched with a white ray a small marble figure which adorned the pediment of this rather factitious little structure. The way it leaped into prominence suggested that a rarer spectacle was at hand, and that the same influence must be vastly becoming to the imprisoned Juno. The door of the casino was, as usual, locked, but the moonlight flooded the high-placed window so generously that my curiosity became obstinate and inventive. I dragged a garden-seat round from the portico, placed it on end, and succeeded in climbing to the top of it and bringing myself abreast of one of the windows. The casement yielded to my pressure, turned on its hinges, and showed me what I had been looking for, a transfiguration. The beautiful image stood bathed in the cold radiance, shining with a purity that made her convincingly divine. If by day her rich paleness suggested faded gold, she now had a complexion like silver slightly dimmed. The effect was almost terrible. Beauty so expressive could hardly be inanimate. This was my foremost observation. I leave you to fancy whether my next was less interesting. At some distance from the foot of the statue, just out of the light, I perceived a figure lying flat on the pavement, prostrate, apparently, with devotion. I can hardly tell you how it completed the impressiveness of the scene. It marked the shining image as a goddess indeed, and seemed to throw a sort of conscious pride into her stony mask. Of course, in this recumbent worshipper, I immediately recognized the Count, and while I lingered there, as if to help me to read the full meaning of his attitude, the moonlight travelled forward and covered his breast and face. Then I saw that his eyes were closed, and that he was either asleep or swooning. Watching him attentively, I perceived his even respirations, and judged there was no reason for alarm. The moonlight blanched his face, which seemed already pale with weariness. 
he had come into the presence of the Juno, in obedience to that fabulous passion of which the symptoms had given us so much to wonder at, and exhausted either by compliance or resistance, he had sunk down at her feet in a stupid sleep. The lunar influence soon roused him, however. He muttered something and raised himself, vaguely staring. Then, recognizing his situation, he rose and stood for some time gazing fixedly at the brilliant image, with an expression which I suspected was not that of wholly unprotesting devotion. He uttered a string of broken words, of which I was unable to catch the meaning, and then, after another pause, and a long melancholy moan, he turned slowly to the door. As rapidly and noiselessly as possible, I descended from my post of vigilance, and passed behind the casino, and in a moment I heard the sound of the closing lock and the departing footsteps. The next day, meeting in the garden the functionary who had conducted the excavation, I shook my finger at him with an intention of portentous gravity, but he only grinned like the malicious earth gnome to which I had always compared him, and twisted his moustache as if my menace were a capital joke. If you dig any more holes here, I said, you shall be thrust into the deepest of them, and have the earth packed down on top of you. We have made enough discoveries, and we want no more statues. Your Juno has almost ruined us. He burst out laughing. I expected as much. I had my notion. What was your notion? That the Signor Conte would begin and say his prayers to her. Good heavens! Is the case so common? Why did you expect it? On the contrary, the case is rare. But I have fumbled so long in the monstrous heritage of antiquity that I have learned a multitude of secrets, learned that ancient relics may work modern miracles. There is a pagan element in all of us. I don't speak for you, illustrissimi forestieri, and the old gods have still their worshippers. The old spirit still throbs here and there, and the Signor Conte has his share of it. He's a good fellow, but between ourselves, He's an impossible Christian. And this singular personage resumed his impertinent hilarity. If your provisions were so distinct, you ought to have given me a hint of them, I said. I should have sent your spadesman walking. Ah, but the Juno is so beautiful. Her beauty be blasted. Can you tell me what has become of the Contessa's? To rival the Juno, she is turning to marble herself. He shrugged his shoulders. Ah, but the Juno is worth fifty thousand scudi. I would give a hundred thousand to have her annihilated. Perhaps, after all, I shall want you to dig another hole. At your service, he answered with a flourish, while I turned my back on him. A couple of days later I dined, as I often did, with my host and hostess, and met the Count face to face for the first time since his prostration in the casino. He bore the traces of it, and was uncommonly taciturn and absent. It appeared to me that the path of the antique faith was not strewn with flowers, and that the Juno was becoming daily a harder mistress to serve. Dinner was scarcely over before he rose from table and took up his hat. As he did so, passing near his wife, he faltered a moment, stopped, and gave her, for the first time, I imagine, that vaguely imploring look which I myself had often caught. She moved her lips in inarticulate sympathy, and put out her hands. He drew her towards him, kissed her with an almost brutal violence, and strode away. The occasion was propitious, and further delay unnecessary. 
"'What I have to tell you is very strange,' I said to the Countess, "'very improbable, very incredible. But perhaps you will not find it so bad as you feared. There is a woman in the case. Your enemy is the Juno. The Count—how shall I say it?—the Count takes her au sérieux. She was silent, but after a moment she touched my arm with her hand, and I knew she meant that I had spoken her own belief. You admired his antique simplicity? You see how far it goes. He has reverted to the faith of his fathers. Dormant for so many centuries, that imperious image has silently evoked it. He believes in the pedigrees you used to dogsear your school mythology with, trying to get by heart. In a word, dear child, Marco is an anthropomorphist. Do you know what that means? I suppose you will be terribly shocked, she answered, if I say that he is welcome to any faith, if he will only share it with me. I will believe in Jupiter, if he'll bid me. My sorrow is not for that. Let my husband be himself. My sorrow is for the gulf of silence and indifference that has opened itself between us. His Juno is the reality. I am the fiction. I have lately become reconciled to this gulf of silence, and to your losing for a while your importance. After the fable, the moral. The poor fellow has but half succumbed. The other half protests. The modern man is shut out in the darkness with his irreproachable wife. How can he have failed to feel, vaguely and grossly, if it must have been, but in every throb of his heart, that you are a more perfect experiment of nature, a riper fruit of time, than those primitive persons for whom Juno was a terror and Venus a model? He pays you the compliment of believing you an unconvertible modern. He has crossed the Acheron, but he has left you behind as a pledge to the present. We will bring him back to redeem it. The old ancestral ghosts ought to be propitiated when a pretty creature like you has sacrificed the best elements of her life. He has proved himself one of the Valerii. We shall see to it that he is the last, and yet that his passing away shall leave the Conte Marco in excellent health. I spoke with confidence, and partly felt it, for it seemed to me that if the Count was to be touched, it must be by the sense that his strange spiritual excursion had not made his wife detest him. We talked long and to a hopeful end, for before I went away my goddaughter expressed the desire to go out and look at the Juno. I was afraid of her almost from the first, she said, and have hardly seen her since she was set up in the casino. Perhaps I can learn a lesson from her. Perhaps I can guess how she charms him. For a moment I hesitated, from the fear that we might intrude upon the Count's devotions. Then, as something in the poor girl's face suggested that she too had thought of this, and felt a sudden impulse to pluck victory from the heart of danger, I bravely offered her my arm. The night was cloudy, and on this occasion apparently the triumphant goddess was to depend upon her own lustre. But as we approached the casino, I saw that the door was ajar, and that there was lamplight within. The lamp was suspended in front of the image, and it showed us that the place was empty, but evidently the Count had lately been there. Before the statue stood a roughly extemporized altar, composed of a shapeless fragment of antique marble, engraved with an illegible Greek inscription. We seemed really to stand in a pagan temple and as we gazed at the serene divinity, I think we each of us felt for a moment the breath of superstition. 
It ought to have been quickened, I suppose, but it was rudely arrested by our observing a curious glitter on the face of the low altar. A second glance showed us it was blood. My companion looked at me in pale horror, and turned away with a cry. A swarm of hideous conjectures pressed into my mind, and for a moment I was sickened. But at last I remembered that there is blood and blood, and that in the best time the ancient Romans offered no human victims. "'Be sure it's very innocent,' I said. "'A lamb, a kid, or a sucking calf.' But it was enough for her nerves and her conscience that it was a crimson trickle, and she returned to the house in immense agitation. The rest of the night was not passed in a way to restore her to calmness. The Count had not come in, and she sat up for him from hour to hour. I remained with her, smoking my cigar as composedly as I might, but internally I wondered what in horror's name had become of him. Gradually, as the hours wore away, I arrived at a vague interpretation of these strange practices, an interpretation none the less valid and less welcome for being comparatively cheerful. The blood-drops on the altar, I mused, were the last instalment of his debt and the end of his delusion. They had been a happy necessity, for he was, after all, too generous a creature not to hate himself for having shed them, not to abhor so cruelly insistent an idol. He had wandered away to recover himself in solitude, and he would come back to us with a repentant heart and an inquiring mind. I should certainly have believed all this more easily, however, if I could have heard his footstep in the hall. Toward dawn scepticism threatened to creep in with the grey light, and I restlessly betook myself to the portico. Here, in a few moments, I saw him cross the grass, heavy-footed, splashed with mud, and evidently excessively tired. He must have been walking all night, and his face denoted that his spirit had been as restless as his body. He passed near me, and before he entered the house he stopped, looked at me a moment, and then held out his hand. I grasped it warmly, and it seemed to me to throb with all that he was unable to utter. "'Will you see your wife?' I asked. He passed his hand over his eyes and shook his head. "'Not now, not yet. Sometime,' he answered. I was disappointed, but I convinced her, I think, that he had cast out the devil. She felt, poor girl, a pardonable desire to celebrate the event. I returned to my lodging, spent the day in Rome, and came back to the villa toward dusk. I was told that the Countess was in the grounds. I looked for her cautiously at first, for I thought it just possible I might intrude upon the natural consequences of a reconciliation. But failing to meet her, I turned toward the casino, and found myself face to face with the mocking little commissioner. "'Does your Excellency happen to have twenty yards of stout rope about him?' he asked gravely. "'Do you want to hang yourself for the trouble you have stood sponsor to?' I answered. "'It's a hanging matter, I promise you. The Countess has given orders. You will find her in the casino. Sweet-voiced as she is, she knows how to make her orders understood.' At the door of the casino stood half a dozen of the labourers on the place, looking vaguely solemn, like outstanding dependents at a superior funeral. The Countess was within, in a position which was an answer to the surveyor's riddle. She stood with her eyes fixed on the Juno, who had been removed from her pedestal, and lay stretched in her magnificent length upon a rude litter. 
Do you understand? she said. She's beautiful, she's noble, she's precious, but she must go back. And with a passionate gesture she seemed to represent an open grave. I was hugely delighted, but I thought it discreet to stroke my chin and look scrupulous. She is worth fifty thousand scudi. She shook her head sadly. If we were to sell her to the Pope and give the money to the poor, it wouldn't profit us. She must go back. She must go back. We must smother her beauty in the dreadful earth. It makes me feel almost as if she were alive. But it came to me last night with overwhelming force, when my husband came in and refused to see me, that he will not be himself so long as she is above ground. To cut the knot we must bury her, if I had only thought of it before. Not before, I said, shaking my head in turn. Heaven reward our sacrifice now. The little expert, when he reappeared, seemed hardly like an agent of the celestial influences, but he was deft and active, which was more to the point. Every now and then he uttered some half-articulate lament, by way of protest against the countess's cruelty, but I saw him privately scanning the recumbent image with an eye which seemed to foresee a malicious glee in standing on a certain unmarked spot on the turf, and grinning till people stared. He had brought back an abundance of rope, and having summoned his assistants who vigorously lifted the litter, he led the way to the original excavation which had been left unclosed, owing to the project of further researches. By the time we reached the edge of the grave, the evening had fallen, and the beauty of our marble victim was shrouded in a dusky veil. No one spoke, if not exactly for shame, at least for regret. Whatever our plea, our performance looked at least monstrously profane. The ropes were adjusted, and the Juno was slowly lowered into her earthy bed. The Countess took a handful of earth, and dropped it solemnly on her breast. "'May it lie lightly, but for ever,' she said. "'Amen!' cried the little surveyor, with a strange sneering inflection, and he gave us a bow as he departed, which betrayed an agreeable consciousness of knowing where fifty thousand scudi were buried. His underlings had another cask of wine, the result of which, for them, was a suspension of all consciousness, and a subsequent irreparable confusion of memory as to where they had plied their spades. The Countess had not yet seen her husband, who had again apparently betaken himself to communion with the great god Pan. I was, of course, unwilling to leave her to encounter alone the results of her momentous deed. She wandered into the drawing-room, and pretended to occupy herself with a bit of embroidery, but in reality she was bravely composing herself for an explanation. I took up a book, but it held my attention as feebly. As the evening wore away, I heard a movement on the threshold, and saw the Count lifting the tapestried curtain which masked the door, and looking silently at his wife. His eyes were brilliant, but not angry. He had missed the Juno, and drawn a long breath. The Countess kept her eyes fixed on her work, and drew her silken threads like an image of domestic tranquillity. The image seemed to fascinate him. He came in slowly, almost on tiptoe, walked to the chimney-piece, and stood there a while, giving her, askance, an immense deal of attention. What had passed, what was passing in his mind, I leave to your own apprehension. 
My goddaughter's hand trembled as it rose and fell, and the colour came into her cheek. At last she raised her eyes, and sustained the gaze in which all his returning faith seemed concentrated. He hesitated for a moment, as if her very forgiveness kept the gulf open between them, and then he strode forward, fell on his two knees, and buried his head in her lap. I departed, as the Count had come in, on tiptoe. He never became, if you will, a thoroughly modern man, but one day, years after, when a visitor to whom he was showing his cabinet became inquisitive as to a marble hand suspended in one of its inner recesses, he looked grave and turned the lock on it. It is the hand of a beautiful creature, he said, whom I once greatly admired. Ah, a Roman, asked the gentleman with a smirk. A Greek, said the Count, with a frown. End of section two. End of The Last of the Valerii by Henry James